This is the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. Our guest is the CEO and Executive Director of the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance. In the news, the American Airlines Flight Attendant Union asks for compensation increases. This is the last year for the air races at Reno, and the first Boeing Dreamliners to leave service are being parted out. We also have an Australia News Desk report and a lot of great aviation topics from listeners. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 741 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hello, Max. Hello, everyone else who's listening. I just came back from a full day of teaching, and as we were talking about just a moment ago, oh, Daylight saving time. Man, I am dragging today. So hope, hopefully everyone has recovered from that by the time they hear us. I know that hour sometimes uh, sometimes gets you. It kind of sneaks up on you. But uh, something else that sometimes sneaks up on us is Rob Mark. Now, he's a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a business jet pilot, a CFI. He's been an air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hey, good evening. And I, I resemble that uh, sneaking up on you uh, comment. Um, but no, it's nice. It's nice to be here because now I can pick on you guys instead of David. Um, uh, who knows what awaits you? Yeah, David's off this week. Um, a little under the weather. Hopefully he'll be feeling better. I'm sure he will be for next week. Well, our guest this episode is Nikki Malcolm. She's CEO and Executive Director at the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance, the PNAA. Now, that's a nonprofit organization that promotes the growth and global competitiveness of the Pacific Northwest. Now, Nikki has spent the past 23 years dedicated to the aerospace industry. She's had roles in supply chain, business development, executive leadership, and companies ranging from materials to manufacturing and testing. And we're also told she's obsessed with all things aviation and aerospace, including manufacturing. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're told. Uh, I'm sorry. The journalist here has got to find out what's what's your source, Max. What's my source? I, I have yes. just uh, all kinds of sources that uh, 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 tell me things, including uh, observing the background behind Nikki and all of her airplane models and uh, and things, and lots of books. I'm sure those books are mostly aviation. Are those all aviation related books, Nikki? They are a little bit of everything: personal development and aviation books. Very good. Uh, one thing about Nikki is she encourages others to join the aerospace industry. She volunteers on multiple trade school advisory boards and STEM education programs looking to promote the message that aerospace is for everyone and to support the effort of encouraging more women and girls to join the aerospace industry. She registered National Women in Aerospace Day for May 20th this year, 2023. Are you spearheading National Women in Aerospace Day, Nikki? 
I am. Yes, I am trying very hard to make it as big as possible. And really national and international, I would like it to be as big as possible a day to highlight all the work that's being done by women in the industry. Very good. And we also understand you're looking to perhaps get your pilot, your private pilot's license this year. Are you, have you been working towards that? I am going to be starting ground school here in the next month or so. So, Max, if you have any tips for me, I'd be happy to hear them. Yeah, these two guys, uh, Max Trescott and Rob, will uh, will have lots of advice, I think. And, and that's Max Flight's advice. Talk to us. Very little of which you should probably take. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're we're going to talk about the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance coming up and how aerospace plays such a significant role in that region of the country. But first, we have some aviation news from the past week to talk about. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready in the Midwest. Ready. First story comes from PaddleYourOwnCanoe.com. This is American Airlines flight attendants demand 35% hike in hourly pay rates and boarding pay in latest contract proposals. And Rob, this comes from the Association of Professional Flight Attendants, right? Right. And uh, th- this is a story that has been following me for decades because even when I flew for a, a, a crummy little regional carrier out of Chicago decades ago, uh, the pilots were paid um, not better than the flight attendants, but differently. Uh, the pilots had a guarantee. We, I think it was 75 or 80 hours uh, a month so that no matter what happened, at least we had something to count on uh, to pay the bills. Uh, but flight attendants have never had that. And uh, I, I remember uh, dearly having a conversation with somebody always before the pandemic, and we, we had a long uh, stop on the ground in, at Midway. And... Um, I said something to the flight attendant back in the uh, in the galley later on while we were flying, and I said, "So, did you guys ever work that out in your contracts that you guys get paid when you're not in the air?" She went, "Nope." I said, "Oh my god!" And I, to this day, I cannot believe that they even get people to take those jobs. Uh, and uh, thank God that they do, uh, because. <laughs> You wouldn't have much of a flight crew if, uh, if it was only the people up front. But uh, I, I really applaud this uh, pay increase, as well as the, uh, the uh, additional uh, caveat that they're going to get boarding pay. They, they don't even get paid for the time they're helping bozos like, uh, like Max and I find our seats. And uh, they often help lift those big, heavy bags up because old guys like us can't lift those bags and put them in the overhead bin. And uh, no, seriously. But I, I mean, for years, I, I thought, no, you, you guys are kidding. They couldn't possibly be, be not being paid for that. But they were. So th- this is really a big step forward, I think. And they're asking, I understand, for boarding pay that's 50% of the standard hourly rate. So it's not even the full hourly rate. It's 50%, which I think is the same as what uh, was negotiated with Delta. The union, the APFA, is also looking for pay increases for galley work and night shifts, also increased per diem allowance rates, and a Me Too clause 
And this is something where they would automatically get increased allowance if the pilots won a higher rate. I saw another version of this story uh, someplace else, and the uh, and the headline in quotes was, "We want what the pilots get," and uh, and I thought. Woo, that's because this week, uh, in fact, the last two weeks, we've had some incredible pay raises announced by Delta and American, where senior captains are going to be close to six hundred grand a year, uh, which is just it's it's unheard of. Um, so I thought they're going to take a pay raise like I. It, not quite that much, but uh, uh, again, it's uh, it's time that the. Uh, the men and women that work in the back, and they're not there as as uh, waiters and waitresses. They're there to keep our butts out of uh, trouble when when the airplane uh, is an issue. I mean, uh, I know flight attendants that have told me that when they were in an accident, uh, they they had to yell at pa- uh, patients. I'm sorry, <laughs> they had Slipping to the yell door. at uh, passengers to get them to move because people would just be in shock and they were just. They would just sit there, and uh, and that's why they're they're there is to get get out, get out, get out, and leave your damn carry on bags there. So thank goodness for them. Yeah, I just pulled up the story about the uh, Delta uh, increase for uh, pilots, and American has said that apparently they will match it, but it includes a twenty one percent pay increase in the first year. It says that. Uh, captains flying narrow body planes could make 475,000 at the top of the scale up from the current pay by a, an increase of 135,000 while the most senior captains of wide bodies would after I believe 4 years be making $590,000 a year a $170,000 increase from today all i can say is i think those cheap airline tickets that we were used to are gone <laughs> i don't know if you've noticed but the, the cost of tickets this year, I read, is uh, 94% above what they were last year. And based on what I've been paying, yep, they're definitely up. Yeah. Our listener, uh, Rich, sent us uh, an item. And uh, we have an article on that topic from One Mile at a Time. Uh, it's American Airlines CEO offers pilots up to $590,000 in pay. That's what you guys were, were just talking about. And uh, the article uh, makes the the point that um, during the pandemic, or at least the the beginning of it, the the pilots didn't have too much negotiating leverage, but that's different now. Pilots are in such high demand, and uh, are kind of in the driver's seat to a certain extent. If you're trying to negotiate a new a new contract, as the article says, uh, we've seen pilots at Alaska Airlines and Delta Airlines negotiate new contracts, and other pilots, uh, or pilots at other airlines are trying to do the same. Interestingly, in this case, with American Airlines, the CEO, uh, Robert Isom, has uh, sent a letter to the pilots. That's where this $590,000 pay comes up, which is kind of uh, essentially a contract offer, uh, which is very strange because normally that's done behind closed doors, you know, with the the, the company and the union representatives and not not by memo from the CEO. So that's that's a little bit different. I think they're doing that to make themselves look good because they knew in the end they would probably end up having to pay anyway. And why not make a little positive PR uh, out of it by saying, folks, we'll just we'll just give you this. Can you live with it? And people are going, well, OK. 
Um, yeah. So I, I, but again, that if I were in the PR department, that's what I would be telling the CEO. But I might be wrong. So Nikki, I, I imagine that most of the uh, members of the uh, alliance, the North, uh, the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance, are companies that um, many of them probably have labor unions involved in them. Are you just interacting more at the corporate level, the company level, or do you, you know, interact with, with the union leadership? So we interact at the business level, but we certainly have a relationship with the unions. They attend our conference, they have tables at our conference and things like that. So I would say we participate, but we're not, we're, our membership focus is really on the corporations and the manufacturing companies in the ecosystem, as well as the companies that support them. Sure. That's what I would have expected. So I think it's, and I didn't know the answer to the question, but I think it's, uh, it's pretty great that, that, you know, the labor unions do have a, uh, a role in participating in all this. Yes. All right. Move on to the next story. Uh, this came in from David Reno Stead Airport to hold its final national championship air race event in 2023. The national championship air races have been taking place just outside Reno since 1964. And uh, many people just simply call them the Reno Air Races. It's it's kind of like how people call EAA Air Venture Oshkosh. People just call it the Reno Air Races. But the uh, Reno Air Racing Association has issued a statement, and in it they say, while we knew this day might come, we had hoped it wouldn't come so soon. Citing the region's significant growth among other concerns, the Reno-Tahoe Airport Authority has made the decision to sunset the event. So uh, last year for the Reno Air Races at Reno, or the National Championship Air Races at Reno, it appears. I guess they're looking for other locations, but I I don't know (laughs) where they would do that. Alaska? (laughs) And actually... That might make some sense because what they're saying is that the region's growth was one of the concerns. I take that to mean that you know the the residents that are living by are complaining about the noise. Certainly, the people I've talked to who've been to Reno say that these are incredibly loud. Yeah, that's the way I took it too. Uh, and I and, and I think that commercial service that comes in there is an impact. Can be an impact. That's one of the challenges that most of those regions face with those air shows is the commercial service. Well, and I think this is at the Reno Stead Airport, so it's a little bit, uh, a few miles away from the, the big main airport. Uh, but yeah, I, I've always thought, thought of them as the Reno races. It's just hard to believe that they won't be in Reno anymore. Uh, but gosh. Okay, do you remember, anybody remember where they used to be before they were in Reno? Cleveland? No, I have no idea. Oh. I thought they were always in Reno. Oh, no? Max, he's such a smart aleck. He well, knows all the answers. Cleveland, is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. They used to be in Cleveland. Um, I, I don't know if there was an interim uh, between Cleveland and Reno, but let's see. If they've been in Reno for, what did they say? 64. 64, 65 years. That would put it back. No, I think they may have been in Cleveland up until uh, they switched to Reno, but uh, maybe one of our sharp-eared listeners knows more about that. Yeah. So this year they're September they're being held September thirteenth through seventeenth. You know, I think the challenge is you'd want to have them somewhere near a metro area just to draw the crowds, but you also want them to be some area where the noise is not gonna, you know, bother the local residents. So I think it's gonna be a challenge to figure out where to where to cite this. 
Yeah, where where would that place be that the noise around an airport wouldn't bother the local residents, especially the ones that yeah. moved in uh, a few years after the, uh, uh, you know, when, when the land started to open up around an airport and said, oh, no, we don't care about an airport. It's fine. Fine with us. But, but you're going to fly Victor airplanes Bill, there? California. There you go. There's one. Um, I was thinking Edwards Air Force Base. So you and I were in the same neck of the woods. What about San Bernardino? I mean, San Bernardino could be. Chino is also, you know, it's a yeah, little I mean, more busy. But uh, San Bernardino's just digging out from the, how much snow did they get? 10 <laughs> feet, feet or something? Some of the mountains, yeah. Yeah. I, anyway. I was talking with the people that put on the Alberta International Air Show, and they're certainly, you know, trying to build that air show out even bigger. So Alberta is an answer to that question as well. It's not in the U.S., but it's in North America. So they would be the Canadian National Championship Air Races. North <laughs> we'd America? Be, <laughs> we'd, we'd, be, we'd be outsourcing our air races. That just doesn't well, seem right. Yeah. Well, there's just options. The Alberta International Air Show, August 4th through 6th, 2023. Hmm. Alberta's, Alberta's going to come up when we talk about participation at Oshkosh. I haven't told Rob this yet, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to be in Alberta <laughs> during Oshkosh this year. So uh, my plans So no Camp Bacon, right? No Camp Bacon for Max. I'll, t- I'll take his spot. Oh, good, good. I make bacon. Somebody, <laughs> somebody needs Dude, to. But okay. have you come to Air Venture, Nikki? Have you been there? I have not, which oh. is insane because it's actually my birthday weekend, and I've been wanting to forever. So I will likely do it this year, but I'll definitely be at the Alberta Air Show. Hmm. All right, that sounds great. Yeah, Oshkosh is fantastic. I've only been the one year once to escape the pestering by Rob. Uh, and it worked. No, it didn't. I found you anyway. <laughs> yeah, you did. Among the five or 600,000 visitors, I tracked you down, didn't I? You did. You very much did. Yes. Did you see the JBLM one is coming back this year, which I'm very excited about? The JBL? Um, air show, the Joint Base Lewis-McChord. They're bringing oh. their air show back. Are they? Which is oh. Very exciting. That's actually how I found my love of aerospace was through that show. At an air show? Yeah, at the JBLM one. Wow. That was when I first was like, I think it was a B-2 flew over and, and my stepdad at the time was explaining, you know, what a stealth bomber is and what all of that was. And that was How really where you? I was like, whoa, probably 11 or 12. Ah, see, that's how you got into this, you know, promoting aviation to women. And uh, that's really cool. Focus. Yeah, That's certainly how I stayed. Yes, but I sure. I think that age you mentioned is kind of the sweet spot. You know, I consistently hear people are kind of, you know, 10 to 12, 13. I mean, that's really the range, I think, where uh, the bug occurs. So it's so important to expose young kids to, to aviation because if not, they're going to get some other bug at that age. And especially with little girls, all of the studies show that after fifth grade is where they start to lose their focus towards uh, STEM, science and math. And technology is where they start to see that interest drop off. So that certainly is somewhere that we're looking to target. Uh, Getting more girls and young kids exposed is in fifth grade. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that that age statistic before. All right, one more uh, story from CNN. Two 
10-year-old Boeing 787 Dreamliners are already being scrapped. So these are two former Norwegian Air Shuttle 787-8s. They're being parted out at Presswick Airport near Glasgow in Scotland. And Glas- these were... Sorry, Glasgow. Glasgow. Glasgow, yes. Scotland. <laughs> these were delivered in June and August 2013, I guess. Uh, he probably says Illinois, too. Illinois. <laughs> or Kansas. I will, I will hang up the call. Yeah. <laughs> So these are the first Dreamliners to be retired. Now, they've been stored since 2019. Um, they are actually part of a group of 35 787s that were grounded due to problems with engine blades, which were cracking. There's some uh, premature corrosion and so forth. Um, but even though they found a solution to that issue, the planes never went into service again. And then we had the pandemic. So the the group that's managing the disassembly is I, I don't know how you say this Air Trade E I R Trade Aviation Dublin based company they're managing that disassembly and it sounds kind of shocking on the on the face of it because the the planes are so so young but uh, you know economics comes to play here the the two aircraft were coming up on their twelve year heavy maintenance check and so that was going to cost you know, millions of dollars. So uh, when you take a look at the economics of uh, the airplane as a whole and the value as uh, as parts, and sometimes it swings in the direction of, of the parts. The engines have been pulled already. That's usually the first thing to go uh, when you're parting out an aircraft. Uh, the engines are usually the most valuable part. And um, it, this is a you know a typical process. Uh, the components are sent to uh, to be inspected, repaired, and overhauled, um, which is the the process whereby they get their uh, serviceability documentation so that they can be resold, uh, or leased, or exchanged. Uh, sometimes these businesses have uh, a lucrative exchange business where an MRO shop, uh, let's say, overhauling an engine takes out a part, it's not serviceable, it's not the spec, needs to be repaired. So instead of waiting the 30, 60, 90 or more days to get it repaired, companies offer exchange programs where title changes. You give them the the part that needs to be repaired, they give you back a different serviceable part for a fee, and then your part, your original part gets repaired. I don't know, uh, Nikki, are are there any of those kind of businesses uh, in, in your region? Certainly, especially, I mean, on the MRO side, ATS is the first one that comes to mind. They're definitely one of our members. They do more heavy check stuff than like an FAA. That's more like a repair station, A&R Aviation Services. There's some people in the south end that are, are more focused on things like that. But, you know, ATS does big heavy checks, C and D checks, things like that. So for sure. But there's not as many. I would like there to be more MRO companies here in Washington personally. Yeah, yeah. The the OEM companies don't always uh, fully, you know, don't always appreciate the the serviceable part businesses that that spring up. Of course, the operators like it because the, the uh, uh, their maintenance cost goes down if they're able to get used serviceable parts versus buying brand new from from the OEM. But it's a you know it's a viable, it's an important part of the uh, sort of the overall equation for how the maintenance works. Well, and certainly given the supply chain challenges that are happening right now, material cost soaring, it's not surprising to me to hear that the components are more valuable in that case because, I mean, everything's more valuable when you can't get a replacement 
at all. So it definitely changes the value of all these parts from the materials all the way to the component and system level. So Max, while you brought this up, a question for you. When these components end up going back for their serviceability documentation, since it's a 787, do they all go back to Boeing or do they go back to the individual component manufacturers? Who is allowed to certify that these you know, meet, meet the standard? Yeah, if it's a licensed repair shop, they can they can do that, and they'll they'll inspect the parts uh, against the manual, um, usually against the the OEM manual, and uh, and then de- decide if they're serviceable as is, you know, or if they don't fully meet the spec and need to be repaired, or if they have to be overhauled. Depends on the type of part as well, and there's all kinds of um, different um, you know different rules that come into play here. Some parts are, uh, their serviceability is uh, limited by hours. Some parts are limited by cycles. How many, you know, takeoff and landing basically cycles. Um, Some parts, I know there's some airfoils that can be repaired a certain number of times. The ones I'm familiar with could be repaired twice. After that, there's scrap. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a lot to, that goes into this. And that, that repair industry is all over the world. I mean, it's a global business. And it's not unusual for um, somebody with a, an engine, maybe a CFM 56, to ship it to um, Singapore, to an overhaul shop in, in Singapore and have it done there. Uh, and then for the parts to, uh, you know, after, their, after the, uh, in this case, the engine is disassembled for the parts to go to repair shop, component repair shops in Singapore or anywhere else in the world, depending on who's got the, you know, the, the skill and the capacity to, uh, to perform that kind of work. It, it's really an interesting business. Yeah, a quick trip to the MRO show would show you just how many companies there are that do that kind of work. And as well as the PMAs, where they make them, they have the authority to make the parts in the aftermarket. Right, right. PMA, Parts Manufacturing Authority, I think it is. Parts. Prime Manufacturing? Prime parts Manufacturing? Yeah, Parts. One of those two. Yeah, something like that. But you just say yeah. PMAs. Yes. Right. And and those are companies that you know have been granted the ability to manufacture new parts, just like the OEM would manufacture or purchase from a component manufacturer um, that part. In some cases, they are the component manufacturer. So if you buy the the Boeing part or the PMA part, uh, they might be manufactured in the same place, but not necessarily always. All right. Again, we're speaking with Nikki Malcolm. Uh, Nikki, welcome to the podcast, the CEO and Executive Director of the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance. Maybe you can give us the the elevator pitch for what the uh, PNAA offers uh, to the region, to the companies that are your members. Yes, thank you. So we're a nonprofit trade association, and our mission is to support the growth and global competitiveness of the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Cluster. And we do that through, we have a lot of big events. So we just recently had our advanced conference in February where we get between five and 700 people from all over the globe. We have educational events. We provide market intelligence, B2B meetings, and networking are the biggest majority of what we do that supports people growing their business and understanding how to be more competitive as in the market. You mentioned the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Cluster. Yes. PNAC. Uh, what is that exactly? 
Yeah, great question. So we were awarded last year, we were awarded an innovation cluster acceleration grant. And there were multiple clusters awarded in the state of Washington, two of which have to do with aerospace. So we have ourselves, the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Cluster, as well as the Sustainable Aviation Technologies and Energies. So both are focused on aerospace. And what ours is, is we took on five topic, five focus areas that we're helping essentially modernize the current manufacturing ecosystem. So we do that through workforce, supply chain mapping, environmentally sustainable manufacturing, industry 4.0, so innovation, manufacturing innovation, and then the global marketing, so how we go to market as a region. So the goal of the innovation clusters is to, you know, drive innovation, promote new market opportunities, and advance the industry. So we bring together what, how it's different from PNAA versus the PNAC is this, the goal of it is really to be the connective tissue that drives together academics and investors and entrepreneurs and government and trade associations and industry all together so that industry has a voice for how we're moving things forward. And maybe you can describe the types of companies that are, are how many companies are members of the alliance? Uh, we have a uh, two hundred and fifty two members currently, and they're made up of manufacturers is our main focus, and then the companies and organizations that serve them. So, in order to be a corporate member of PNAA, you have to have a location in the Pacific Northwest, and we deem the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, British Columbia to Alberta. And so the entire region. And so you have to have a location in the Pacific Northwest or a full-time employee that's dedicated to the Pacific Northwest before you can have voting rights to be in our membership and our corporate membership to help shape the direction of the organization. Now, is that 250-some corporations that are members? And do you have individuals who are members as well? We do. So that includes everything. So I think we have about 80 individuals and the rest make up into corporations. Those include some associations, some of the other associations that exist, but majority are uh, manufacturers and service providers. And so you mentioned events. Uh, I understand that a delegation recently went to Australia for the Avalon show. Yeah. The state of Washington actually led that delegation to the Avalon Air Show. I was unfortunately not able to make it this year, but I understand it went really well. And so are events covered globally uh, by uh, either the state of Washington or the Alliance? Yeah, so the the global events, typically Washington State has a delegation that they take the Washington State companies that want to be a part of that. And a lot of times that's covered by a step grant that Washington State offers. So there's some financial assistance to help companies go to those. But we are looking to start bringing delegations to the local aerospace uh, shows like the MRO show, Space Tech Expo, things like that. That's something that in the future PNA is going to take on taking some delegations to those shows to really promote how robust the ecosystem is here as far as manufacturing. Well, I think I've been to events, conferences, air shows where where I've seen displays by an organization uh, or or some uh, group representing a particular state or a particular area. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the pitch that's made? What's trying to be accomplished? You know, in that in the, having that group there. Yeah, and what kind of incentives will you get us to move the podcast to Washington? For example? <laughs> yeah. Me being on it is that a good enough incentive? <laughs> Sold. Yeah. Might yeah. might help. Uh... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
No, so the you know the pitch really is that we have a built-in ecosystem for manufacturing here in the region. We have everything from Kaiser Aluminum in Spokane. So I always say we could build an aircraft all the way in Washington besides the engines. So we have an aluminum mill. We have multiple manufacturers that span broad a broad list of capabilities from sheet metal to manufacturing, five axis, all of those things. And we also have all of the finishing companies, all the outside processing. So we have an, a built-in ecosystem to make airplane parts and components here that has been around for over 100 years at this point has and has built up around the companies in this region. So it's a plug-and-play ecosystem for anyone looking to make large aircrafts or components. And did that grow up that way because of, because of Boeing, basically? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that we've seen people join in. You know, a lot of the space companies are emerging here because we have that great blend of technology and the aerospace ecosystem here that exists. So it, it's going to be even more relevant, I think, as new technology gets created, especially in the sustainable aviation side of things, because we have really cheap energy in Washington state. We're starting to see a lot of those companies pop up here, too. So that built-in ecosystem is a no-brainer for companies that are looking to bring their aerospace manufacturing here. And especially when you look at a, a lot of the conversations that are happening around sustainability, I think that a big part of that that will be considered maybe isn't yet, but the the travel time in between where you ship your parts, you know, you hear these stories about how one part comes to Washington and gets created and then gets sent all the way back to Germany and then all the way back to Washington. And I think as the sustainability conversation continues, you're going to see people starting to, you know, right shore or near shore a lot of these uh, services. And I think that that is really what makes this a, an incredible region for aerospace manufacturing now and into the future is that we already have that. So the drive time to get all of these processes completed is shrunk down because we've built this incredible ecosystem in the Pacific Northwest. I, I'm curious, you know, Northwest, uh, the Northwestern part of the U.S. is known for aerospace uh, as Southern California used to be. I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Uh, but now with uh, places like uh, Alabama coming up for, uh, uh, you know, a new factory. Uh, let's see, is it just Boeing's factory? No, wait, it's Airbus that's Airbus, in yeah. Alabama, and Boeing is in... South Carolina. South Carolina. Does Wichita play any part in this anymore, or are they kind of... You know. Yeah, w without question, Wichita is a major player in aerospace. I mean, Spirit Aerosystems is there, and obviously they make a large amount of fuselages. But you know, they also have NIAR there, which is the institute, the okay, sorry, university that has some pretty incredible capabilities as well. So, for sure, <laughs> are are the factories in Alabama and South Carolina? Are they going to start to create something? like what you have, or are they just already part of it, just working at a different location? What do you mean? Like, what do you... I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> no. Do you um, mean, are they part of our association? They're well, not. Do, uh, will they probably create one? Sure. I would, I would think it's, you know, I, I would think it's silly if they didn't create one. Silly, maybe that's not the right word, but I would, I would see the success of other associations and and look to replicate that success if I were in that region, for sure. 
I, I guess if I had been a little more clear, I could have made a really good point, really, a really salient point. Uh, but are there other places in the U.S. that are competing with with you guys for uh, aerospace uh, stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. The the regions you mentioned, but you know, the way that I look at it is not a zero sum game. The industry is increasing every day. And this idea that, you know, moving something to one place is taking away from a region is, I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to that, because I think that as we grow the industry, you know, air traffic isn't slowing, everything's growing. So I think that there's just opportunity for expansion, it doesn't have to be a, you know, zero sum game there. Sure. Nikki, it sounds like you're trying to attract more aerospace manufacturers to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and to of some course. extent, does that create more competition for some of your members? I mean, is that, uh, are those two things at odds with each other to some extent? I don't think that there are enough companies to support the current, the upcoming manufacturing output that's needed, period. So no, because what, you know, in theory, they would the companies would come that complement the services that already exist here rather than compete. But sure, there's going to be competition. But again, you know, when you look at the the amount of manufacturing jobs that are going to be needed and the deficit that's there, that we need more companies to come. So that really is one of the, the main items of your mission statement is to attract more companies to the Pacific Northwest. And who wouldn't want to, as we discussed, it's the greatest <laughs> region in the world. <laughs> it is a lovely part of the Most world. of the year. <laughs> Yeah, most of the year. Are, are there cows in Washington? Yes, there are. Ah. Rob, you want to move Certainly. now? Is that <laughs> one of the places that they're looking at? The new airport is uh, has let plenty of cows there. So, Enumclaw in Washington is uh, has lots of cows. Uh, Nikki, when you talk about uh, you know more co- more companies in the region or the need for them, uh, increased capacity. A manufacturing capacity, I guess, is uh, are you thinking about um, sort of the existing kinds of business or is, is there some component of that that's newer technology, electric aircraft or, you know, VTOLs or urban air mobility solutions, things like that? How much of that is, is of that type? It's a both and for me. So what I would like to see is the manufacturing ecosystems here modernized from some of the technology. And that's part of what we're doing with the cluster work is introduction and creation of new technologies that help manufacturers. But in addition to that, there are also multiple companies that are emerging here in Washington with those new technologies. So there's Zeroavia, there's Magniex, there's Eviation. And then there's Aerotech is in Moses Lake and they're in Seattle too, but they're all working towards that same goal of sustainable aviation. And so given the fact that there's a lot of energy consumption that goes into creating sustainable aviation uh, aircraft, Washington is a perfect place for that. And how about the skills of the workforce? Uh, well, the, the just the the capacity of the workforce is is it where it needs to be? And uh, you know, what about the skill sets that need to be created? Yeah, that's a great question. No, they're not where they need to be, and and I think that's pretty much across the board in manufacturing. Is we need to attract more people into the industry. I think that there's been a really heavy focus on universities, and now we're seeing that change a bit to people being attracted to trades jobs and doing a better job as an industry, promoting the trades jobs and promoting that 
they are really great jobs that people want to have. And when you look at European countries and how they look at trades, it's much different than how we look at them here. And I would love to see us move towards that sort of methodology and how we talk about and communicate the trades because it's incredibly important to everything that we do in the aviation industry. And the focus very often goes on pilots and engineers, but there's a plethora of jobs below that that oftentimes get overlooked that are just as critical to making an airplane fly. Hmm. I've seen companies uh, make, I don't know, investments or in some way or other support uh, educational institutions that could help bring more skilled employees into the company. Is, is that the same in, in the Pacific Northwest? Absolutely. There's a lot of organizations that work on that. There's an organization called AJAC and their Aerospace Joint Apprenticeship Center. If I don't get that right, they're going to be mad at me. <laughs> so uh, they they have apprenticeship programs. So there's certainly the union that has apprenticeship programs. But there's also a lot of work being put into, and that's part of what we're doing with the cluster, is into finding new ways, new access points to attract new talent into the industry. One of the things that we're working on doing is making a website that shows careers in aerospace and a roadmap, because oftentimes when I was selling metal, I would get this. I didn't even know somebody had to sell metal to make an airplane, right? Oftentimes people don't think about the supply chain that goes into making an airplane. And we don't connect those dots very well as an industry. And so someone who's machining might not really be that connected with why what they're doing matters. And that's one of the things that we're really trying to focus on is creating this careers in aerospace roadmap that shows people all of the jobs that go into the aerospace industry, someone referred to it as the hundred hands of the supply chain to me. And I love that because there's so much opportunity to be a part of the industry that people don't know. And oftentimes we don't have a great system for handing them off. So we might have these STEM programs and there's some really incredible STEM programs in Washington and the Pacific Northwest. And then we have some CTE schools, but then somewhere between there, the kids can get a little lost with what they're pursuing. And so we're going to be trying to create a website that connects those dots and, and fills that pipeline of workers all the way from, you know, zero to five, showing kids what the STEM programs and things that exist to help them in that age range all the way up through their career time. You mentioned that uh, you, you wished that people in the United States looked at the... Um uh, the the trade side of uh, uh, the aerospace industry the way the Europeans do. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, from what I've seen, I think that the focus on trades, they the way that the trades are spoken about are very different than the way that the trades have been spoken about in the U.S. And that's that it's a high esteem role and it's absolutely critical to infrastructure and all of those things. We don't necessarily do that here as much. Uh, and so just really trying to put a focus on the fact that trades are just as critical as engineers and pilots and and the fact that we need all of those to make the ecosystem work effectively. Yeah, and let me just add that I lived in Germany for a while, and it was clear that the educational system is set up to help create a funnel of people toward the trades. Uh, people, uh, children, kids make a, a decision at a relatively early age as to which schools are going to attend, and they don't all attend for the same amount of years. You know, people that are out of track to go to college, they'll be in uh, schools longer. People that are 
uh, and the schools that are focused on the trades, they will be out of those schools uh, at a much earlier age and become apprentices and you know start doing their uh, you know their work and they're very um, uniform kind of oriented. So you, every time you see a tradesman working in Germany, you you kind of see them in their uniform. Whereas here in the U.S., you know people are just dressed kind of randomly, uh, and so I think it does kind of create a an impression that oh this is uh, you know something that's important that's getting done in our country. Absolutely. How about the the role of governments? Uh, I, I imagine that in the Pacific Northwest, the uh, the, the governments there are uh, fairly friendly towards uh, the aerospace industry. Is that the case? And uh, also, do you do any any work or, or advocacy at the national level? That's a great question. So, <clears throat> just in the time that I've been in this role. We have seen some great participation, especially from the state of Washington, by putting in the innovation clusters, and they've also created an aerospace and aviation council that's really focused on the industry and helping support the industry, as well as there's a manufacturing council even here in Washington with the goal of doubling manufacturing jobs. So there's a lot of focus being put on it right now and support being given to help carry those things through. As far as advocacy, we don't, we're not an advocacy organization, so we work with a couple of other advocacy-based organizations in Washington. There's the Aerospace Futures Alliance and the Association of Washington Businesses does a lot of the advocacy work. But I serve on the Aviation and Aerospace Council, which comes up with a lot of legislation that will be put forward to help for take the industry forward. And that's where I participate on that side of it. What are the big things that keep you up at night? What are the uh, the big objectives or the, the big projects, uh, the, the kinds of things that you look into the future and uh, think about how that is going to be handled? That's a great question. Lots of things keep me up at night. <laughs> the workforce is really the most critical one. So the I think my opinion is that the culture in aerospace needs to shift uh, in, in order to create the type of in order to fill the pipeline of people, we need to get much more serious about diversity as an industry and how we approach that because we're leaving out a massive subsector of people because of our because of our more antiquated hiring practices. And, the you know, the industry has had this um, reputation, if you will, about being a really conservative industry. And that's one of the things certainly that I'm trying to affect in my role is showing people that we're human beings and that we are also a very fun industry once you're on the inside of it. Like all of the people that I've met are incredible and I've built these great relationships, but oftentimes from the outside, it doesn't appear that way. It seems very regimented and strict, which it is because we have certain quality expectations and things like that. But I think the human side of it gets missed oftentimes. So I think that, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is show this aerospace is for everyone campaign and, and showcase people that, you know, oftentimes when you hear pilot or you hear engineer, it, it just because that's what oftentimes gets associated with the jobs in aerospace, people discount themselves like, oh, I don't want to be a pilot. And I and I'm terrible at math is always the answer when you talk about engineering, right? And but the fact is, there's actually a ton of you could tell me almost any interest or passion that you have. And I could tell you that there's a job in aerospace for it. And so really just trying to get the messaging out that aerospace is truly for everyone. And there's a plethora of jobs that are available no matter what your skill is. So workforce and having the amount of people in the workforce that we need is the thing that keeps me up the most because we can't make airplanes if we don't have people that are interested and passionate about uh, 
pursuing the industry. And, you know, one of the things that I often hear is that young people don't want to be part of an industry that contributes to the major carbon challenges that we're having in the climate change. And my answer to that is come help us change it, mm, right? Yeah. Come be a part of the change. There's companies that are working every single day to make that better. They're aware. So come and be a part of the change. If you don't like it, come help us change it. And I think that messaging like that is really critical to help people understand if, if there's something about it that, that we want to change, come be a part of it. Uh, the other part of what keeps me up at night, obviously right now is short term is supply chain and the challenges that we're having in the supply chain and materials and inflation is is a major concern to me uh, about how companies and specifically companies with fixed cost contact contracts are going to be managing that. And uh, the third would be technology adoption, because I think that we're a very risk averse, historically a very risk averse region or industry. And that, from what I've seen, has created a challenge or a gap in people adopting new technology. And I think that that's going to be absolutely critical to doing that, not only for advancing their manufacturing capabilities, but for attracting new talent. You said aerospace is for everyone twice. Yes. Is yes. that a slogan that you use? And if yes. not, boy, it should be. <laughs> it is, yes. And we're going to be working to create a campaign that showcases people in all types of roles in the aerospace industry. Do you happen to know uh, Tamara Holmes from uh, the Arion Institute or uh, Arion Aviation here in Chicago? Oh, it's funny because uh, you you sound like you guys have worked together because uh, <laughs> I heard her uh, speaking on an FAA workforce panel last year, and she said that uh, she put it in a way that I had not thought about it, that um, for every pilot that's hired, there are 99 other jobs that it takes to keep that airplane in the air. Uh, wow. Flight attendants, mechanics, air traffic controllers, machinists, uh, electronic tech. I mean, the, uh, what's a great word? A, a plethora of jobs. I I like that word, actually. So, uh, <laughs> But I... I, I should connect you guys up because uh, she's a very interesting uh, lady and you guys think very much alike. That's great. She must be incredibly smart then. Uh, and, we, and- <laughs> we, should have, we should have said that for you. Yeah, yeah. And Rob, I mean, what I would say to that is that's just the aviation jobs. That's just once the aircraft is delivered and they need to fly it, right? Take, take it even further below the iceberg in that. And, and start from smelting the material, and then the materials manufacturer, and then the distributor, and then the manufacturer, and the finishing. So there's just this entire supply chain that oftentimes is completely unnoticed because it's below the water, if you will, of an iceberg. You Most people don't even engage with the industry until the, the aviation or the flying side of it. Well, we heard so much about supply chain issues pop up when the pandemic first hit a couple of years ago. Um, is that not getting any better? No, no, really? it's actually not appearing to get any better at this current time, especially on the material side of things. Hmm. That's not good. Well, because people are taking deliveries now, right? So they're actually during the pandemic, it wasn't as big of an issue because there weren't as many aircrafts being created. But now, 
you know, the programs are all coming back on. And now you've had new entrants to the marketplace from the space companies, as well as some of the clean aviation companies. So the pressure on the supply chain is more now, and it's going to be even more as the programs continue to grow. So there's a lot of work being done to mitigate the supply chain challenges right now. Wow. Nikki, you you mentioned earlier about the, um, at least the perception that this industry is so conservative. And on on one level, I want it to be conservative, right? Because uh, the risks are, you know, are so great of what could happen. I want Boeing to be more conservative than, I don't know, Schwinn making bicycles, for example. I don't know, just to randomly pick something. On one level, being conservative is good, but being conservative doesn't necessarily mean that you're slow or unresponsive or you know unwilling to think about new approaches how you get faster or more nimble but still without losing sort of the essential element of conservatism that the industry needs i i don't know how you reconcile or approach that well i think that you know, we have the standards and the quality standards, the AS9100 and all these things that really govern the work, how the work gets done. And we have quality standards. Those are those are not going to change. I'm never recommending that we become less conservative in a in an industry that is highly dependent on the safety and quality of what we make. It's more on the cultural side, the cultural side of the industry about how we go about hiring practices and who we're bringing into the room, because if we don't create more diversity in those places, I think it actually stunts how fast we move forward as an industry. As we all know, diverse perspectives in a room are going to help create more innovation. And so I think from my perspective, when I say less conservative, it's more on that side of things. It's on the culture side of things, never on the quality and safety side of things. Okay, good. Just it's be- just oftentimes companies aren't great at both of those things. So I think that the key is is to becoming good at both of those things, humanizing the industry as well as maintaining the strict quality standards that we're, that are absolutely necessary. Great. Is is that the kind of thing that the association, or I'm sorry, the alliance would be talking about at one of their conferences that, you know, as Max said, we want to be conservative, but not too conservative. And how do we make all these pieces come together so that we can compete with the Airbuses of the world? I mean, 40 years ago, people laughed at Airbus and said, oh, you know. They're never going to last. Oh, my God. Well, look at it now. I mean, they deliver more airplanes than Boeing does. So we do events, and we – so a great example is we did an event called the Untapped Talent Pool, and that was really to showcase people that have barriers to employment and how people could think a little bit differently about how they hire people, I think – you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about what it, what goes into hiring someone who might have some barriers to employment. So we have companies here in this region. There's actually quite a few nonprofit companies here that have social missions. So they help people that may have handicaps or they help people who are there's the lighthouse for the blind and they help people that are blind. And then we have Pioneer Human Services that actually helps people with second chance employment that have been in prison or drug rehabilitation and really helping people understand the fact that we need to widen the labor pool of candidates before so we can fill the amount of jobs that we need. So I think that when it comes to diversity, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. And we try to 
put on educational events to help people understand what those look like. And through the cluster, we're certainly also doing work around that and helping, uh, you know, we have scholarships for kids that are getting into school, as well as creating next generation leadership tickets to our events or allowing students to come to our events and get them into the ecosystem as soon as possible. So we can help learn from them about what they want from the workforce. I think that that's a challenge. There's a bit of a discrepancy between what the industry thinks that the workforce wants and what the upcoming generation of workforce truly wants. It's very different. And and I think that we are going, we are working on educating people on what that looks like and how to bridge that gap. Uh, Nikki, I want to give you a, an opportunity to say a little bit more about National Women in Aerospace Day, May yes. 20th. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what we can expect there. Yeah. So last year, I think it was like a year and a half ago, I registered May 20th for National Women in Aerospace Day. It was the day that Amelia Earhart took off on her flight. So I picked that day and registered it. And I've been on a campaign to try to get it internationally recognized. Last year, the city of Kent here in Washington actually did a proclamation of the day. And I have it on my wall here because we had uh, the 230 women that came to our Women in Aerospace conference last year on May 20th, we had them sign it. So it was a, you know, kickoff of the event. So we're trying, my goal is to get it nationally and internationally recognized in as many spaces as possible. So we take that day to celebrate all of the work that's being done past, present, and future. We have our Women in Aerospace conferences coming up on May 18th this year. And our uh, our theme is Power of the Past, Force of the Future. And the goal of the day is really to create an arc of showcasing women who have really pioneered the industry all the way to ending with Alyssa Carson. If you don't know who she is, she's incredible. She's the NASA Blueberry, and she's a young woman that is working to become the first human on Mars. And so we're building out this arc of really past, present, and future for the industry to showcase as much of the great work that's being done by women in the industry. Wow. You, you've really got to... Um appreciate someone who wants to be the first human on Mars. I would not want to be the first human on Mars <laughs> or the no, second. No, no, but... no, no. See, I don't think that's a problem at all. I think people are are looking at this much too narrowly. I wouldn't mind being the first man on Mars at all, but I also want to be the first man to come back from Mars. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and if you read about her, she's fully recognized the idea of like, you don't really come back from Mars. There's, it's a one-way ticket. It's been, it's really interesting. If you read up on her, I'm beyond excited to have her come. I've been fangirling out over her for years because she's been pursuing this for many years. And and you know, some of the stories show that her her dad said that even around like age three or four, she was like, "That's what I want to do." Mm-hmm. And she's been pursuing it ever since. And she's coming to speak, which has and, me. And what's her name again? Beyond excited, Alyssa Carson. Alyssa Curse. Yeah. Write that down, Rob. Which is funny because there are a couple people I can think of I'd like to send to Mars. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's funny. <laughs> On a one-way trip. <laughs> or, no, not really. Or his initials EM, by any chance. One of our local companies here, they created an aerospace magazine focused for kids. It's called Let's Go Aerospace. And if you want to read about her, too, there is an article about her in the most recent issue of Let's Go Aerospace. Okay. We'll look for that. All right, Nikki, what are some uh, some resources? Of course, there's a, uh, some websites that people can go to learn more or social media where you might be active. Where can people go to learn more? Yeah, so I'm most active on my personal LinkedIn and the PNAA, the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance LinkedIn, as well as our website is www.pnaa.net. And we will 
most of the cluster work that's being done will be promoting it there and on our LinkedIn so people can keep up on it and then they can reach out to us if they have any questions or want additional information. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Nikki. Really enjoyed the conversation. This has been really interesting. Yeah, yeah. You really know your stuff, Nikki. I try. (laughs) It's a, you know, good amount of time in the industry. Well, I just keep wondering what your next position is going to be, and I'm thinking it's probably head of HR at Boeing or something like that. (laughs) Well, let them know that. But uh, no, we'll see. We'll see. How do you keep current? It must be a lot of networking. Tons of networking. I talk on the phone a large majority of the day (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I'm in meetings, but, you know, attending other events and outside events and this, this role definitely gets me uh, exposed to a lot of conversations that help move the industry forward. So it's amazing. Do you have other family members who are in aviation or aerospace or, or are you it? I am it. My husband is a private, has his private pilot's license, but no, I, that's really it. And I can tell that you are much hipper than any of us because your headset looks much better than ours. What kind of headset is that? This is that, my anyway? Bose noise-canceling headset oh, okay. that uh, no. is a result of being next to a crying child all the way on a flight one time. I stopped uh, at the airport, texted my husband. and was like, I'm buying a noise-canceling headset and we'll yeah. not do another flight without one. Yeah, earplugs go with me on every airline <laughs> flight. Wow, thanks for being our guest. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. The didgeridoo means it's time for the Australian News Desk. Here's two of the craziest guys we could find south of the equator. It's Steve Vischer and Grant McHaren from the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast. Dateline, 12th of March, 2023. Well, good day, folks. Welcome to the Australia Desk for episode 741. Now, Grant, I think I'm finally getting my voice back after Avalon. I've been a little <laughs> bit scratchy and croaky the last few weeks. I think I may have just talked a little bit too much, breathed in too much dust and air show stuff. Well, fortunately, you didn't get the dreaded lurgy. Uh, there were a few people we know who got uh, COVID at the air show, but we managed to avoid it, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, there's a sticker. I went to this stinking air show and all I came back with was, was a case of COVID. Oh, no. Oh, well, hey, a sticker a, in that. I think, I think you might be right. <laughs> yeah, Grant, we've got, a, we've got a few things to talk about here this week, mate. And uh, I think the first one, probably the biggest news-wise this week, aviation-wise in Australia, is that the, the ATSB, the uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau, has released a preliminary report into the collision on the Gold Coast a month or two back of the, uh, the two helicopters at SeaWorld there. That's right, mate. Back in January, uh, very tragic, uh, one coming down to land on a, a pad and the other one coming up off a different pad. And sadly, they both collided. Uh, one just plummeted to the ground and the other one was able to uh, do a couple of orbits and come down on the sandbar next to the, the other's wreckage. But the preliminary report is just that, preliminary. It's facts. What they've been able to gather so far from eyewitness reports, video on board and on the ground, uh, all that kind of stuff. So they've got information together, but they don't have anything in there about, oh, this was the cause or anything like that. It's just the facts, Jack. Yeah, it's more really, as you say, Grant, a summary and and signifying uh, probably some key areas that the ATSB is looking to investigate as this inquiry goes on. Um, I think we would have mentioned uh, at the time when we covered this that the full report is going to take many, many, many months before it comes out, probably Mm -hmm. a year or two even before we, we really know what happened. Uh, they are noting here that they are in, well, they are signalling here at least that they're looking at the uh, communications or perhaps lack thereof between the aircrafts. They're not saying that air, that um, the standard and required 
uh, radio communications. And, and bear in mind too that this is uncontrolled airspace that they were operating in, but still um, radio procedures. They're not saying they didn't happen. The question is if they did happen perhaps, well, how come – you know, one helicopter wasn't aware that the other one had made that call. So those are things that are going to come out hopefully in the fullness of time. Exactly, exactly. Also of interest, they've got a uh, 3D rendering of a pilot's view inside the uh, Eurocopters in question. So they're actually able to put those aircraft in the positions they were in with the ability to see what the pilot would have seen. So that's going to go a long way to uh, indicating because apparently some of the onboard video from the passengers in the helicopter above was actually showing the aircraft, but it's possible the pilot wasn't able to see it due to the direction it was coming up to them from. Yeah, so as, as Grant mentioned, it is a preliminary report. It's, it's certainly not the full one, and uh, it was a, a very, very tragic accident. And um, we, we all want to know, obviously, what happened and why it happened so that we can uh, improve things and make sure, as, as is always the case with such things like this, what can we learn from it and how can we mitigate the risk of it happening again in the future? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, hey, uh, going a little bit further north from the Gold Coast where that accident tragically occurred, uh, there's an island off uh, Brisbane called Stradbroke Island. Stratty. Also known as Stratty. Yay, good old Stratty. And, uh, mate, there's some... Somebody set up this really cool concept that I, I just, uh, as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, I have to do this. And your comment was, we have to interview them because they're called Brewery. Yes. And right up you your depart- alley, my friend. Right up your oh, alley. Totally. I could imagine it. You flying, me drinking. Hello. Right. <laughs> just like doing a car trip now, really. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yeah. But yeah, you fly out of Archerfield and they fly you over North Stradbroke Island. And you're actually consuming some of a couple of the beers from Stratty Brewing Company. And uh, then you actually get to land on North Stradbroke Island and go and have lunch and a few more beers at the actual brewery itself. And then you can jump on the ferry and come back and get your own way back. Or you can you know, pay a bit extra and have the aircraft stick around and then they'll actually fly you back to Brisbane. I think this is brilliant. Now, there's only one caveat that I'd put on this, Grant, and that is, of course, um, how plush is the aircraft interior because you know i actually think that i'd want it to be very very basic and easily cleanable because just imagine if you get someone who's not really you know au fait with flying in a light aircraft and you uh, take them up and get them half tanked well that may not be a good outcome for those who have to clean (laughs) said aircraft i'm just saying well mate it's only three cans one's a lager oh my goodness three cans i'd be out of my ear Well, like I said, one's a pale ale, one's a lager, and the other's a uh, pilsner. So if there's a couple of you on board sharing the uh, can each, I mean, really, dude, even you wouldn't be that far gone on the equivalent of one can of lager. Sounds like a very dodgy proposition to me, my friend. (laughs) Hey, I did see sheepskin in the photos. So, um, yeah, I think we've got to give this a whirl, mate. Absolutely. We certainly have to check it out. If you want to check it out, Stratty Brewery Tours. It's a bit weird. .com.au, and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. In the show notes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely, where you can uh, just click on it rather than have to pronounce it like I just tried three times. Anyhow, (laughs) Grant, uh, moving on to this last story here and uh, flicking from something that you like to drink to something that I drink way too much of, and that's coffee. It looks like, uh, according to this headline in the uh, New Daily, it says, more flying coffees forecast as Google to expand drone tech. Well, flying coffees. That could be also a very bad proposition for my ever 
skyrocketing blood pressure, Grant. I know, right? You wouldn't even have to get up from the edit desk to get your next coffee. It'd just be, I mean, I'm sure you could train one of the dogs to bring it in from the backyard. Oh, that's a very good idea. I'd never thought of that. Ha <laughs> ha! But uh, yes, yeah, so <laughs> Google Wing have been doing some trials in California with self-loading drones, and now they're about to do it here in Australia over the next, oh, I think it's the next year or so. And they've already been operating in Canberra and in parts of Brisbane, where they have done thousands of deliveries of uh, such goodies as coffee, food, and light groceries. All right, so we could delete the light groceries. Who needs those? Food, well, maybe. But coffee, you say? <laughs> I'm very interested in coffee. You had me at coffee. <laughs> well, apparently Wing has delivered more than 330,000 packages in Australia since 2017. So, yeah. Yep, you had a bit coffee, folks. You heard it here first. Steve, new client, as soon as they open up in the uh, right area of Melbourne. So get on that wing. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's all the news we have for this week. We thought what we might do just to give a sample of uh, some of the coverage that we, we did at uh, Avalon while we were there. Uh, Grant, I actually uh, do a little bit of work in news media these days, as some people know. And uh, here's a couple of samples of some reports that I filed for Australian Independent Radio News during that week. RAAF's F-35 fighter is without doubt the star of the flying displays here at Avalon, with Defence keen to show some of its impressive high and low speed handling capabilities. Development of the program is ongoing, and Program Director for Lockheed Martin Stephen Over has told Air News the delivery program for the aircraft, both here in Australia and more widely, is gaining momentum. Uh, 60 of them have been delivered uh, to Australia, with 12 more to come. And we forecast over the life of the program, as we look out 30, 40 years from now, a total program number that will probably approach at least 4,000. At the Australian International Air Show, I'm Steve Vischer for Air News. Day three of the air show sees further displays of high-tech military hardware, but it's not all about the big stuff. The Defence Forces miniature drone racing tent is said to be a big hit as gates open to the general public. Wing Commander Kieran Joyce has told Air News it's a great way for the Defence Force to engage with young people. Kids love drone racing. And for the public days at the last air show, the grandstand was packed. Uh, All the kids love watching the action. They love watching the pilots rebuilding their aeroplanes. They love watching the crashes. So we went bigger this time. And gates open to the public here at Avalon from midday tomorrow. At the Australian International Air Show, Steve Vischer for Air News. Well, there you go, mate. Crikey, that, that guy sounds really professional. We should give him a job here. I know, right? Uh, mate, he could actually improve the quality of aviation reporting in the mainstream media. There'll be way less Blowmaster Awards. Absolutely. Now, Grant, in that F-35 report, there is a bit of a magic of radio moment, and uh, we might just put uh, it out there for our listeners. We won't say what it is, but let's see if anybody can pick what it is in that F-35 report and... Um, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, perhaps if people send in uh, some emails to Max and they can tell him what they think it is and we'll we'll judge the responses for the following Australian News Desk. Well, that means they've got a month to do it because I'm doing the Benalla Air Show next weekend and you're busy driving trains, so who knows when we're going to get to do it. Hint, do it quick. It's probably only going to be a week. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, the uh, finishing touches are being put on the uh, relaunch episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, and I'm pretty hopeful that uh, we'll have that launched probably within the next week or so. So mm-hmm. please make sure that your uh, your RSS feed is updated in your podcatcher to make sure it picks up our new feed. We'd really appreciate it, and uh, we'll certainly be sure to let you know when that comes out. But until then, 
Well, I guess I better go away and do some more editing. I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. Steve, mate, sorry, I, I, the real reason I can't do next week is because I'm going, I'm going up to Stratty for a beer. Go as if I didn't guess that already. Did those guys have a a, uh, a psychiatric exam before they uh, uh, pitched us with this next uh, season of playing crazy down under? Uh, yeah, they failed. That's why we have them back on. Ah, yes. Okay. All right. So what do you guys think it was in the report? I wondered if it was the sound effect of the jet going past. Or... I'm going to have to listen to it again. Um Maybe it was uh, Steve Fisher pretending he was at this air show <laughs> when he was really in his basement. Could be. Ah. Uh, I just want to mention the uh, the first story they were talking about. I had read about that, the two helicopters that crashed in January. They were at SeaWorld uh, in Australia, and I guess they give rides to uh, visitors. And the key thing that stuck out to me, which they mentioned, was the lack of radio communications, which apparently weren't required. However, we just had a mid-air collision here in the United States last week, uh, which was down at Winter Haven. Uh, it was a, uh, a Piper Cub on floats at the Jack Brown, I believe it's Jack Brown seaplane base, uh, collided with a, a Cherokee that was landing on the adjacent runway at Winter Haven. And I've landed at that airport before. And indeed, the, the, the lake is right next to the uh, runway. But again, apparently lack of radio communication on the case of the uh, the Piper Cub. So I think a major, major theme uh, for uh, you know, mid-air collisions, people have to be talking on the radio, even if it's not legally required. <laughs> if I were the FAA administrator, I think I'd consider requiring it. Yeah, I think we've gotten past the, the day and age where we can go, oh, yeah, they've got, we've got these fun romantic airplanes from the 40s that don't need to talk on the radio. Uh, you know, the air traffic has grown to the point where I think everybody should be on the radio, but that's just my opinion. Wow. And I, I'm not sure about this brewery concept i'm just imagining a bunch of well a couple of drunk passengers on a cessna i mean there's not um it's not like you've got a whole boeing or airbus to try to um, deal with someone who's had a little bit too much i mean if you're trapped in a cessna with someone like that i don't know well to be candid that's that's illegal. <laughs> you know, you are as a pilot, you're not permitted to have somebody on board who is drunk. Uh, and so there was a case up in the the Northwest where there was a drunk who was boarded on a part 135 uh, aircraft uh, charter, and he was directly uh, the cause of the accident. And yet his, uh, sur his survivors, his family, you know, sued the, the pilot's estate because, hey, they shouldn't have allowed this drunk person to come on board. Wow. As far as Steve and Grant go, let's be serious. They live in the upside down. So, you know. You can only expect so much, right? Yeah. All right, a few shout-outs. Actually, one shout-out. Uh, this is pretty cool. Uh, the GeekWire podcast uh, has uh, an episode out that has a conversation with our friend Isaac Alexander, as, along with uh, Robin Koenig, uh, on Hype Aviation. Did you guys get to listen to it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. It was. It was very good. And there's a lot of background, personal background uh, about Isaac and, uh, you know, the things that he's done in the past, which I, 
which I really enjoyed hearing. So that's on geekwire.com. And we'll have a link to that particular episode in the show notes. And then for listener mail, well, we heard from Patrick Wiggins. Uh, He sent us a link to a YouTube video. It's the 2023 State of NASA address from the administrator, Bill Nelson. And he talks uh, some about the the first A in NASA, the uh, aeronautics, but uh, a lot of other aspects as well. And it's not just strictly a talking head kind of a video. I mean, it includes that, but it's interspersed with other uh, graphics and animations and things that NASA has has done recently and will be doing. There are a lot of animations of uh, upcoming space ventures and things uh, that are uh, kind of cool to, to look at. Um, so uh, check that out. Have that in the show notes. And uh, Denver sent us a link, and I found this was fascinating. This is about hydrogen codes, production codes. Uh, it uses a system of, of colors. I think we mentioned previously the, the term green hydrogen, and I think it was me, but it might have been somebody else who said, what does green hydrogen uh, mean? I mean, I kind of get the concept, but specifically, what, is that, what does that mean? Well, there's this whole color scheme. And there are a lot of categories. I didn't count them, but there's probably 10 or 12 of these. But as a few examples, green hydrogen is produced through water electrolysis process by employing renewable electricity. It's green because there is no, or it's called green because there is no CO2 emission during the production process. Um, And of course, electrolysis is that process that uses electricity to take water and split it or decompose it into hydrogen gas and oxygen. But to be called green hydrogen, uh, the electricity has to be produced through a renewable a renewable process, solar or hydropower, I guess, or something like that. But there's a couple of, well, there's a number of others. Blue hydrogen is sourced from fossil fuel. However, to be called blue hydrogen, the CO2 is captured and stored underground. That's called carbon sequestration. There's gray hydrogen, also produced from fossil fuel, commonly uses steam methane reforming as the method. And in that case, gray hydrogen, the CO2 that's produced, is released into the atmosphere. And there's all these other categories. There's black or brown hydrogen, which is produced from coal. There's turquoise uh, it says it can be extracted by using thermal splitting of methane via methane pyrolysis. I'm not sure what that means. Let's see. The process, though, at the, at the experimental stage removes the carbon in a solid form instead of CO2 gas. Well, that's fascinating. There's purple hydrogen that's made through using nuclear power. There's pink hydrogen um, that's using... Electrolysis, again, electrolysis of water, but in this case, electricity is produced from a nuclear power plant. Red hydrogen is produced through high-temperature catalytic splitting of water using nuclear thermal power. And then finally, there's white hydrogen, which is naturally occurring hydrogen. Um, So when we talk about uh, using hydrogen as a fuel in aviation applications, uh, now, now we know what the proper question to ask is the terminology here, the different types of, uh, the different methods for producing hydrogen. Uh, Some of them are greener than than others, if you will. So I'm really glad Denver sent this in because this is something I had absolutely no idea about. This was all new to me. 
I wonder if he had to take some kind of test once about this, and that's why he remembers all this. <laughs> I mean, after about the fifth or sixth color, my, my eyes kind of glazed over. Yeah, I know, I know. But that's the question to ask. Someone talks about, yeah, we're going to use hydrogen for power. And says, okay, what kind of hydrogen or or what process are you going to use to produce the hydrogen? That's I think that's kind of... Oh, no, no, no. You say, what, what color is that hydrogen uh, process? And he goes... But here's the big question. Who came up with a silly idea anyway of assigning colors to different ways of making hydrogen? I, I love the turquoise one. I thought that yeah. was pretty cool. Because if well, it's not colors... Actually, what is it? It's, it is kind of clever, I have to admit. But yeah. it just it seems so unusual. I mean, carbon type A, type B. Type, I mean, that doesn't. That's that's not very exciting. No. So, um, yeah, thanks Denver for sending that in. I really appreciate that. And Luke um, sent in an article. Uh, well, this is a YouTube video, actually. We'll have this in the show notes too. Rolls Royce begins F one thirty dual pod engine test for the B fifty two aircraft. So as you as you might know, the uh, B-52 aircraft are going to be re-engined. There was a competition, and Rolls-Royce won that competition. And they're going to uh, use the same kind of configuration as you see on B-52s now, where there are two engines in a pod together. And so Rolls-Royce, uh, is uh, the, the, the name for this engine is the uh, F-130 uh, which is uh, based on the commercial BR-725 engine, which, uh, as Rob probably knows, is the engine in the Gulfstream G650. So it's the, the military version of that of that engine. So they've started testing it. Ultimately, they expect to uh, produce or supply some 600 engines uh, for these B-52s. And uh, this uh, testing is being done at the NASA Stennis Space Center, in their outdoor test facility in Mississippi. And I think this is going to be, the, the test that's coming up is the first uh, uh, test of the of the uh, two engines in the pod, the dual pod configuration. So we'll be interested in seeing if there are any anomalies or issues or things that come up. I don't know what, vibration or harmonics or I, I don't know what. Um, but uh, you need to test the two engines together in one you know, in one pod, obviously, and that's uh, that's the test that's coming up. I'm going to have to uh, run the math here. I'm dying to know uh, how many dollars per engine. <laughs> you know, it's that two point six billion dollars. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm I'm sure it's uh, it's quite a bit. About four million dollars an engine. Okay, there we go. Does that sound about right? Is that uh, that does actually that's what you ballpark. would charge when you were back at Pratt and Whitney? Yeah, that's 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 ballpark. Okay. Ah, Peter sent in. So, um, uh, Peter Bradfield, the 2023 Aerospace Media Awards, uh, of course, are out. This this is the fourth call for nominations. The closing date is March 31st, 2023. So that's coming up really fast. Uh, there are uh, lots and lots of uh, categories in the Aerospace Media Awards. But uh, what uh, Peter mentions here is that there are a group of five categories that need more nominations. They're hoping to get some more nominations. And those are Best Young Journalist. I love that category. The Best Passenger and Crew Wellbeing Submission. The Bill Gunston Technology Writer of the Year. The Aerospace Reporter of the Year. And Lifetime Achievement. 
and we'll uh, we'll have a, a link where you can see all of the categories and the nominations procedure. And that's uh, we'll have that in the show notes. But it's aerospacemediadinner.com is where you can where you can find that. I like best young journalist, Rob. I think that's a great category. I don't know if there are many best or many young journalists out there. Oh, they're there. It's just that um, I think as uh, uh, our guest mentioned a little while ago, sometimes uh, people just don't always put these topics together and and say, "Gee, I, I I've probably written something that I could submit." Um, everybody thinks their stuff isn't good enough, but uh, we can't let John Ostrower win everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had to laugh when I looked at that best young journalist. And I looked at the lifetime achievement. I realized that's probably just a euphemism for best old journalist. Uh, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you've got any ideas uh, for that, or I just want to check out the the categories, or the other categories, um, and uh, take a look at aerospacemediadinner.com. I think the awards ceremony is in France, is it? It is indeed okay. at the uh, Aero Club of France in Paris in, ah. I think, mid-June. Very good. And, and it, it uh, uh, changes back and forth. One year in Paris, one at uh, Farnborough. Oh, okay. In conjunction with the uh, with the air shows, right? Yes. Ah, because ah, this year is Farnborough. Uh, I mean, sorry, this year is Paris. Yeah. And Rob, didn't you win one of those awards? I was lucky enough to win... Not one, but two. Ooh. And the best part, though, is, is just hanging out with the folks, eating dinner and getting drunk, and then somebody's jabbing you going, hey, man, they're calling your name. And you go, huh, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And what, uh, what, were you, what did you get the award for? Uh, one, oh, gosh. They're sitting right here on my desk. Uh, what was one for? Uh, I you know I don't know what the exact stories were. I, that's a good question. The first one was in two thousand and four, so I'd have to go look that one up. And the other one was in two thousand and nine. This was not the best memory award, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it it was not. You know what? Nobody's ever asked me that before. Uh, by the the first one you held up there, that thing is big. Oh, it's massive! It is it is absolutely massive. I wasn't uh, I wasn't in Paris in 2004 to pick it up, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Perry Bradley, who uh, used to work at AIN, uh, is now the big media guru at um, uh, GE Engines. In uh, where are they in Ohio or something? I think Cincinnati. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so he picked it up. And he said, "Holy smokes, you you ought to pay me extra to to lug this thing from Paris back home." He said, "It's huge," and I thought, "Well, what? It's just an award." Well, I mean, the damn thing. This would make. I mean, only you guys can see it, but this would make an incredible weapon. It yeah, really I was would. thinking it's probably for, I, I, it's I was probably five defense. pounds of metal. Yeah, you don't need a gun, Rob. You got home defense right there. Yeah, you ain't kidding. Now I'm going to have to find out what that, what those two stories were for next week. Yeah, you should. All right, one more um, item, and this uh, came from Andy. He actually posted it on AirplaneGeeks.com as a comment for episode 740. 
And Andy wrote, uh, yet another enjoyable and informative episode. Thanks, guys. And then he says the, quote, finding unexpected things during a 787 C-check discussion reminded me of all the parts, pieces, and dust floating in the cabin during negative and zero-G flight testing aboard N401PW. Hmm. The unsecured 10-foot wooden crate levitating towards us was a bigger concern. We got on the intercom and requested an immediate but not too sudden recovery. So N401PW, I didn't immediately know what that was, although the PW should have been the, the clue. Well, that's also known as Ship 6301. It was the first 747-400 built by Boeing. It was registered by Boeing as N401PW. First flew on April 29, 1988, and it was used by Pratt & Whitney for engine testing prior to entry into service with Northwest Airlines. Boeing changed the registration to N661US and delivered ship 6301 to Northwest Airlines in December 1989. And then ship 6301 joined the Delta fleet when Northwest merged with Delta in 2008. So this aircraft flew or logged more than 61 million miles. And it flew on its its final flight in 2015. It was flight 863 from Honolulu to Atlanta. And now it's at the Delta Flight Museum. It went there in 2016. Uh, they spent almost a year working on it, and it opened as an exhibition in 2017. And inside, uh, you can uh, sit in aircraft seats, check out the upper deck, walk out on a wing, examine what goes on behind the walls of an aircraft. And you can also learn all about the history of the 747 and its role in Delta's history. So that's at the Delta Flight Museum, which, of course, is in Atlanta. Very cool. That's a great story. I didn't know what that was. It started out with being the, uh, you know, the, the negative and zero-G flight testing. Uh, I wonder what Andy was doing during that flight testing. Avoiding the big crate that he mentioned? Crate, yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds very dangerous to have something that big levitating around the cabin with you. I know. That sounds a little, a little scary. But if it's if it's weightless, and you're weightless, and you you banged into each other, would it not hurt? <laughs> well, what if it comes down on your foot or your leg? That would definitely hurt. True. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's when the weightlessness is over that you really worry about. Yeah. Yeah, where that's what I was is. thinking. All right. Hey, we want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast, especially for sticking with us all the way through to this point. Really appreciate it. Our guest this episode was Nikki Malcolm. She's the CEO and Executive Director of Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance. Their website is www.pnaa.net. Of course, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for this episode are at airplanegeeks.com slash 741. That's the direct link to the show notes. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, got anything to close out with? 
definitely like to encourage people to take a listen to episode 268 of Aviation News Talk, which is out in which I talk with uh, CFI Tom Turner about how to troubleshoot a partial or total engine failure in flight. Now, every engine is going to be a little different, but he talks about some generic steps for troubleshooting a partial or complete engine failure. So check that out at aviationnewstalk.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to shoot, shoot me an email, go to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. So is step one of that process, stay calm? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I understand that part of the culture in the military is the first thing you do when you have an emergency is wind the clock. Yeah, Rob's winding his fingers there uh, because the whole idea is you kind of want to disconnect from the the impulse to rapidly do something, which might be wrong and might make things worse. So the whole idea is you really would just want to kind of disconnect from that, realize that very few emergencies require – uh, instant uh, you know, cat-like reflexes and movements. You really need to be thinking about it before you respond and do things. Hmm. Makes sense. Look, look at that accident that happened. Uh, I, I saw a story about it at least a couple of weeks ago, but somewhere in Asia where the, uh, the first officer was uh, trying to help the captain and he feathered both props instead of uh, what he was supposed to do. And, uh, that uh, didn't turn out so well. No, it's pretty bad when you have one good engine and you turn it off. Uh, one, the turn off the good one, went yeah. like they did. So, yeah, somebody needed to be thinking a little bit more before they acted quickly. Wind the clock. That sounds like good advice for lots of situations. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rob, Mark. Except when your car is skidding on the ice, I no don't think winding the clock is going to probably help you a whole lot. But anyway, Max, they can find me at all the usual places, jetwine.com and business and commercial aviation. Uh, uh, who knows what else? Um, let's see. They find me here. Occasionally I'm speaking with uh, Mr. T there uh, on his show. And uh, uh, I, I don't know anybody else that will have me really. So uh I'm just glad to be here. We're glad that you're here. Hey, well, I, I'm the senior. Uh, I'm the senior guy. You realize that, right? The oldest guy. Well, speaking of which, Max, I think there's something we forgot to mention during this show, which was happy birthday to Rob. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to, to Rob. Yeah. <laughs> happy birthday, Robert Mark. Happy birthday to you. There you go. And 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 I'm supposed to be impressed. That you waited until the last friggin' second of the show? I'm sorry. This is when the most people are listening. No, I'm kidding. Thank you very much. It's hard to believe I've made it to 51. Holy cats. I can't believe I'm 51. It just just doesn't seem possible. It's not. It's not. (laughs) All right. You can find me at 30,000feet.com. And we'll ask all of you to please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Night, everybody. And since David's not here. Yep, do it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>